0: The reading is taken from uh, Genesis, chapter 25, beginning at verse 19, and it's about Jacob and Esau. This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethel the Aramean from Paddan Aram and sister of Laban the Aramean isaac prayed to the lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren the lord answered his prayer and his wife rebecca became pregnant the babies jostled each other within her and she said why is this happening to me so she went to inquire of the lord the lord said to her two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebecca loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first. Sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning, everyone. Just have a prayer first. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we know that we are all your children and yet children imperfect in different ways. So we pray that you will receive us and grant us the assurance of your grace and ever-present help, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have heard the news, the Duchess of Cambridge is due to give birth to a baby in July. And in the meantime, Parliament is busy passing legislation so that whether it's a boy or a girl, it will have an equal right to be third in line of succession to the throne after dad and grandpa. Equal rights for girls. Good news for half the population, at any rate. But supposing it's twins, what then? Of course, even with twins, one is born first. But uh, in our age so conscious of equality, I wonder if people would really accept that only one of the twins could sit on the throne. Doesn't seem fair, does it? Uh, Perhaps there'd have to be some sharing arrangement, taking it in turns to sign important papers, open new hospitals, hand out medals, and so on. Fortunately, the medical report is that only one baby is on the way. Our reading from Genesis this morning speaks about the birth of twins, and in fact, in terms of world history, they were more important characters than our own royal family, even though they were born to nomadic parents dwelling in tents in the desert. Because this passage we've just heard is part of the biblical narrative of how God planned through his servant Abraham, to bless all the peoples on earth. His purpose was that through Abraham's descendants, he would create a special nation to become the bearers of his revelation and eventually to receive the Messiah as God's way of bringing redemption to all humanity. But as we read the account in Genesis, what a precarious family tree it is on which this fruit would one day appear. First of all, Abraham's wife is barren for many years. There's no heir to fulfill God's promise. Eventually, Isaac is born. But he turns out to be such a weed that Abraham has to send his servant to find a wife for him because he hasn't got the initiative to find one for himself. And so it is that Rebecca comes on the scene, and she clearly wears the trousers. Isaac himself obviously prefers to sit around in his tent all day. And then, to these ill-matched parents, God grants an ill-matched pair of boys. They're already fighting in the womb, even before they're born. Esau and Jacob. Esau grows up to be a hunter and a sportsman, the apple of his father's eye, especially as he's good at catching the venison from which Isaac can enjoy savory dishes. Jacob, on the other hand, is a sly, stay at home lad, a proper mummy's boy. And the stupid parents have favorites. We read in verse 28. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. There's a recipe for disaster. Things went from bad to worse later on when Jacob, on his mother's orders, deceived his dying father into giving him the blessing of the firstborn, resulting in a complete breakdown in relations with his brother Esau. And so the story goes on. When Jacob, in due course, came to have his own family, he repeated his parents' mistake and made Joseph his special favorite, with the result that the envious brothers sold him off into slavery. Rouse, deceit, envy, suspicion, lack of trust occur on every page. As you follow this sorry tale through Genesis, you come to feel that God could hardly have picked a worse family to be the agents of his special purpose for the world. And yet, the merciless spotlight that scripture throws on their failings, I think gives us a much more helpful insight into what can go wrong in our own families than if they'd been a bunch of goody-goodies. We know that family and kinship give us the strongest emotional bonds that we know. But at the same time, they can be the arena for the bitterest rows. They provide the very foundation of society. And if those bonds become frayed and weak, society itself is in danger. Society becomes unstuck if families become unstuck. And today in Britain, there's plenty of evidence of how true this is. It's not just about the divorce rate or couples splitting up all the time. Children also suffer the presence in the home of violent or abusive parents or lodgers. And even in what may seem to be outwardly a united family, the atmosphere may be poisonous. As was the case in the home of Isaac and Rebecca. Some couples say that they stay together simply for the sake of the children. Others argue that it's more harmful if the children grow up in a loveless household, so it's better to split up. Studies show that a major problem today in this country is the absence of a steady and supportive father in many homes helping to bring up the kids resulting in young boys joining street gangs to gain a sense of belonging to a special group which is what the family should have provided them we have a relation who runs a Christian charity in the West Midlands which provides counseling for children who have experienced family breakup through divorce or bereavement, last year they helped 540 children, both in and out of school hours. There were some who said they preferred to be with a single parent. One wrote, "I love, I live with my mum. Granddad died when I was 11, and Dad is not involved in my life, and I don't want him to be." Clearly, there were some very painful experiences behind that statement. Others who wrote in their report were distraught by their parents' divorce. For example, one said, I felt angry, annoyed, upset, unsettled and confused. Nothing is ever going to be the same again. Everything I had, my home, my room, my memories, had been lost. My mum and dad are not getting back together again so many unhappy kids, and so many dysfunctional families. Well, what might we learn from this model bad family presented to us in Scripture? There are a number of things. And the first point I want to draw out is that all children are a gift from God. That's emphasized in this passage by the fact that Isaac and Rebecca didn't start a family straight away, and Eventually, we read that uh, Isaac, in verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord, which was about the only helpful thing he did in the whole story. And soon, they received the gift from God, the good news that a baby was on the way. But we need to add to the statement something else. If children are a gift from God, they're a gift given equally to both parents it's the responsibility therefore of each parent equally to bring up the child in this story Isaac behaves like too many modern fathers and once his wife is pregnant he takes little further interest in her well-being we learn she has a difficult time in her pregnancy and she has to go and pray to the Lord about it Isaac's not involved. She's left to seek God's help on her own. And God gives us some baffling news. He says the twins in her womb will be the ancestors of two nations. And the Middle East still suffers from the enmity of Esau and Jacob to this day. There are deep mysteries here. But for the purpose of our theme this morning about imperfect families, we can learn from this the consequences of bad parenting reach far beyond the confines of the home. The ramifications go out into society. The whole community suffers from antisocial behavior. The whole of society suffers from the effects of crime and drugs amongst the disaffected kids. Even the whole world may suffer. I wonder what Osama bin Laden was like as a kid. And so the distress within the unit of the family doesn't just affect that family. It goes wider and wider. My next point is that what is required of parents, we see in this passage, is the offer of unconditional love. For each child they're given. Isaac and Rebecca were storing up trouble by showing favoritism each to a different child. What self-centeredness of Isaac to love Esau because he bought him the savory meals? Why didn't he show a bit more interest in Jacob? How are the young to know the love of God A love which reaches out to all his children, however far they stray, when they learn nothing of such love from their parents. And this takes us to perhaps the fundamental point we can learn here about families. They can only flourish where husband and wife are absolutely committed to each other in love. It's helpful here to look back at the last verse of the previous chapter of Genesis 24, verse 67, where the servant sent by Abraham has been guided by God to find Rebekah and he brings her back to meet Isaac. And it says in that last verse, Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah, who died at this point, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. What a lot a psychiatrist could read into that last clause. What exactly was the nature of Isaac's commitment to Rebecca? Did he only want to be looked after by a mother substitute, to have someone to replace his mother, meeting all his infantile needs? Where is the equal sharing in their married life? It says he loved Rebecca, but what practical difference did it make? That leads me on to question the claim of some separating couples that it's better for the children if they live apart. One has to ask how has such a loveless situation arisen if they were truly in love in the first place? What example have they given of a mutually committed relationship? Now, I'm only suggesting there are questions which need to be explored sensitively with professional help. It's dangerous to generalize because each painful situation in such dysfunctional families is different. and has to be explored in its own right. I recognize also that people can change in life. And of course, one partner may behave in a way which destroys the trust in the relationship, as Rebecca did when she deceived Isaac into thinking that Jacob was really Esau. How could their love survive such a desperate act of trickery and deceit? Perhaps the trouble is we use the word love so loosely in our conversation to cover such a huge range of relationships, not all of them, provide an adequate basis for marriage? What sort of love do we show between marrying couples? Now, in this one sermon, I haven't, of course, been able to touch on all the social problems of family life in Britain today. I haven't mentioned issues such as abortion, or adoption, or single parenting, Caring for orphans or children with disabilities. I've simply tried to apply some lessons from this one passage. And of course there are many, many other passages in Scripture with important things to say about family life. But one thing we can see in this passage is how we can learn from bad examples as well as good. This account of the relationship which we read here between Isaac and Jacob gives us some tough lessons for today. But let me finish with something more positive and hopeful. Let me remind you again that this is the family God chose to carry his promise of redemption. In one way or another, we all belong to imperfect families. Each family, by its very nature, brings heartache as well as joy. But none of us is beyond God's help. We just have to ask ourselves, if God could work with a family like that, if he could even make his whole purpose for the world depend upon those imperfect specimens, Isaac and Jacob, then why should we think God will forsake us or be finished and through with us? Whatever we've experienced of blessing in our marriage or family, Whatever we've experienced of sadness, or pain, or loss, or reconciliation, or joy, we can give thanks for the undying care of our Heavenly Father, from whom, as Paul says, every family in heaven and on earth is named. Why? Because the very concept of family comes from Him. He is the one who has created us to live in families, He is the one whose creative and redeeming love works with us in and through our families and leads us in the family of his church to learn to grow together in his love and his grace. And that is the way we find, each and every one of us, our salvation. Amen.